Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by the Texas Outdoor Musical. We are less than six weeks away from opening day of Texas in Paladuro Canyon State Park. Attending this show is something that I think should be on the bucket list of all Texans and especially residents of the Texas Panhandle. The musical is fun, it's entertaining, the setting is gorgeous, and the overall experience is not one you'll soon forget. So reserve your tickets now at texasshow.com. That's texas-show.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to realtor Jennifer Rosenbach of Amarillo's Parkview Realty. Online at amarillosparkviewrealty.com. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com and our May-June issue is coming up really soon. Today's guest is Chris McGilvery, a longtime educator and education advocate and the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Leaders Readers Network. This organization seeks to improve children's lives with a focus on equitable education and literacy for students because literacy is such a big deal in a child's life, especially after they grow up to adulthood. Now, Chris is not initially from this area, but he chose Amarillo as a place to raise his family and to be near family of his own. He's lived elsewhere in Texas, he's lived in New York State, and on the island of Dominica in the Caribbean, which ended up being a big part of the development of his nonprofit. So we talk about all those things in this episode, especially the importance of childhood literacy. Here's Chris McGilvery. Chris McGilvery, welcome to the Hamarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've, I've known of your work um, for at least a year. Uh, Dietrich Peoples was a, a previous guest on the show and, and talked to me about Leaders Readers Network. And I, I thought, okay, I need to talk to the guy who started it. Um, but before we talk about any of that stuff, I, I would like to hear sort of how you ended up in this area in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? I guess the short answer is uh, my wife's career, and uh, I ended up getting a job at West Texas A&M University, um, and we also have family in the area as well. So uh, my sister, my nieces, my brother-in-law live in Amarillo, and it was enticing to, you know, have family nearby. Right. Um, We've been traveling, pursuing our careers, and doing good work in communities, and we thought, you know, after visiting actually Canyon, we live in Canyon. And so it was a great, you know, place to raise the family. And uh, we ended up here. Where are you from originally? Uh, My dad is in the military. So whenever I get that question, it's so you're everywhere. Yeah, we've, we've moved all over every three years. Uh, We were lucky though. Uh, We lived in Hawaii for about seven and a half years, uh, okay. kindergarten to uh, eighth grade. And so it's a, it's a great age <laughs> for living in a place like Hawaii, I imagine. It was lots of great memories. We lived in California. My mom's from the Philippines. My dad's from Boston, Massachusetts. And okay. he enlisted in the Air Force. What part of Hawaii? Oahu, the okay. island of Oahu, Hickam Air Force Base. The prospect of being a kid who lives in so many places and then who has parents from you know, Boston and the Philippines, those are two very different cultures. I mean, did, did you feel like you had a real diverse kind of upbringing in different places, different communities, different people in your life, all those kinds of things? 
you know, I think one of the things that my siblings and I got used to was meeting new friends mm-hmm. and moving around, going to different schools. And I think that we learned how to adapt. And um, but living in Hawaii, it was Ohana, you know, the community. Right, right. It was a huge, you know, the, I remember that family feel, whether it was at school or at home or uh, going out to. Uh, one of the community events, school event, or my sister was in gymnastics and we would go and watch her and everyone would go. And it was family, Whole family. style. <laughs> where, where were you right before you came to Amarillo? We were in Temple, Texas. Okay, Temple, Texas, before you moved to the Panhandle. And your your wife's work brought you here. So what does she do? Is it is something that you can talk about? Or? Yeah. she's. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, she works at Pantex. I don't know anything. I can't say anything, but... Yeah, I always funny. want to preface that. But. It's funny that you asked that because my dad is an intelligence and I don't know exactly he, he, what yeah. he has done. You know, I know he does intelligence work. And so, uh, but I can talk about my wife's work. Okay. Uh, Taryn. So uh, she's a family medicine physician. And okay. so uh, we met an undergrad at Angela State University. Didn't know that she wanted to become a physician. And so uh, throughout our careers, uh, undergrad and then pursuing our our own careers, um, I followed, you know, we supported each other, went through medical school, residency in Temple, Texas, and then landed her first attending job in Canyon. Okay. And that that path, when you have a spouse who's in the medical field, that's kind of going to determine everything. You know, where you end up, you, you find something because she's going to get assigned or... That's just, it's, it's always complicated. I've known so many families like that, and they're just like, oh, we don't know where we're going to be next year, but, you know, whoever... Wherever that happens. That's true. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's been a wild ride. You know, uh, we didn't know that she was going to go to medical school in Dominica in the Caribbean. Oh, really? That's where yeah. she went? Yeah. Ross University School of Medicine. Okay. Um, and then... It's a beautiful uh, island. I've I know. Been there before. You have? Yeah. Well, I'm going in June, so... Okay. <laughs> I'm excited about returning. A yeah. It was a lot of fun. It's a great, great place. Uh, simple living. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was able to focus on her studies. I didn't realize how much hours she would be away. You know, she was rarely at home. You know, she was studying all the time in medical school. And so from there, we moved to New York, where she completed her clinical rotations at at hospital affiliates and learned a lot of, uh, learned a lot. (laughs) So I'm not in medicine, so. (laughs) Was it just the two of you or did you have family? Did like you, kids or anything? It was just the two of us, but in New York, uh, our oldest was born, okay. uh, Grayson, and so uh, during her fourth year of medical school. Wow. And so uh, I was working at Manhattanville College, a social justice uh, university uh, in, in New York, and we ended up, you know, uh, having a surprise in our, our son. We didn't think we were going to have a child during medical school, but we're, he's a, a blessing. You know, mm-hmm. he's it's it's been an amazing journey. And so and then we moved to... Temple, Texas, for her residency at Baylor Scott and White, and so where we, uh, she was working crazy hours at the hospital in training during residency, and we ended up having our second child during her third year of residency. Artist, wow, that's um, well, that sounds like a whirlwind. I I can't imagine how challenging that might have been for both of you. What were you doing? You know, during those years, as as you kind of followed her around during her different residencies and trainings and stuff like what's what's your career been so my background is in education i taught middle school Mm -hmm. i was a middle school english and reading teacher i taught newcomer students in midland um 
and then from from there, I, I taught in higher ed. I, I was a lecturer at Angela State University, and I, I did some research around online learning and designing online courses, which led me to faculty development. And I was fortunate enough to teach online, and okay. so I was able to teach online in Dominica. Wow! <laughs> so teaching students here in the United States, yeah. then while you future were... teachers, okay. Um, and I was able to do that. I remember, you know, uh, Zoom meetings or online meetings where if I had to record something, mm-hmm. you could hear the jungle in the background yeah. <laughs> and the, the birds and just the the nature island. What was the time frame for that? Because I mean, that, that feels like obviously everybody's done that last couple of years. Was that several years ago? In, then? Uh, 2011. Okay. So you're, you're kind of helping pioneer some of that stuff. I, I guess so. I didn't really realize I was, you know, helping, you know, share best practices for teaching online. You know, I, I've always found technology easy. And, you know, if we're going to use technology, let's use it for good. And, and so if we can dem- disseminate knowledge through online courses, you know, or, you know, faculty being able to, to learn how to teach online or using technology in the classroom. And mm-hmm. so while we were in Dominica, I ended up getting a, job at the medical school as well. And so uh, I was the director for faculty development. And so I worked with a lot of the medical faculty, researchers, how to use technology in the classroom. And so that was a neat experience. Wow. Okay. So (laughs) tell me about, you know, finding yourself in the educational world. Was that something that you you always knew you wanted to do, or did it just kind of happen like a lot of careers happen? You know, I, I think... It kind of happened. I, I knew I was going to do something that was going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. I've always been service oriented. I've always volunteered uh, in my early day, you know days in in middle school and high school. It's always just been something that has been a big part of me. Um, in college, I didn't think I was going to end up in, in education. I remember taking a undergraduate course as an elective. And it was an education course. And I told the professor, yeah, I'm just taking it as a, mm. a blow off course. And I don't think I'm going to go into education. <laughs> so, <laughs> Be careful with those blow off courses, right? Yes. And, and I still keep in touch with that professor today. And she's a, a great mentor of mine. And um, I talked to her a few months ago, uh, Dr. Eisenwein, and uh, we laugh about it. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, you know, I'm full on, in, you know, in education, you know, whether it's, you know, teaching or my nonprofit. Um, and I'm about to pursue my PhD. Oh, are you really? Okay. I think some people are like very naturally gifted toward education. Like they just have that, that in them, you know, whether it's explaining how something works or, you know, having the patience to sit with a kid and, and help them learn something. Other people just kind of do that because they think, Oh, I don't know what to do. I'll be a teacher. Um, but the best educators are the ones who just are really and truly good at it. Is, is that something like you feel like, you maybe had those tools in your toolbox, whether they're natural or, or something you developed, but that that was kind of where you were gifted. You know, I think my experiences in life, you know, moving around in a military family, we moved around and I think those experiences lend to like what I want to provide to my students in my classroom or uh, when I'm working with faculty mm-hmm. um, or my experiences volunteering at a school in Dominica and, and getting to know the cultures and just the need. And so um, I think all of my our, my experiences from moving around and our experiences in New York add to it. And so being able to, to take on what I've learned 
uh, through different experiences, whether it was professionally related or personal. I want to take that and share it with my classroom, whether it's an actual classroom space or if it's an individualized space when I'm meeting someone. Mm -hmm. I think when you care and you share that you care, there's so much to learn. We we can learn and grow together. Okay. What did you know of Amarillo Canyon of this area when <laughs> it became clear that this was your path, that you were headed this way? Well, I knew um, my family was here. I knew that it wasn't brand new to you then. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it was. It was new, but familiar. Okay. And so I knew it was close to New Mexico and Colorado. And if we moved here, we'd be able to go and uh, take a road trip if needed to get into the mountains. You know, I, that was appealing to us. Mm -hmm. um, the Paladero Canyon. So I guess if you, th I remember when we first got married. We actually spent some time, I think our first year anniversary at Starlight Canyon. Uh, oh, the, bed and breakfast. The bed and, back, yeah. bed and breakfast. And so really that was a good place. memory, you yeah. know, we, my wife and I had, and it was a really nice uh, mini vacation and the Paladero Canyon. And we, I mean, that's, that's a treasure here. You yeah. know, people come from all over the world to see it. And so uh, those are some of the things that, you know, we were familiar of. But then, you know, um, we moved here and now we're, we're still becoming familiar of, you know, all things Amarillo or the Texas Panhandle. So before we talk about the nonprofit, tell me what you do then at WT. When I was at WT. Oh, so, when yeah. you were at WT, sorry. <laughs> I feel like I'm still there because, you know, I, I'm still friends with a lot of the colleagues there. Well, and, I do too. And I uh, lived there in the 90s. So it's... Um, I, w I was an instructional designer. And so okay. I, I was there just in time for a pandemic to happen mm -hmm. to help faculty uh, to design their, their courses or help them teach online, uh, whether it was, you know, using Zoom or other tools uh, on Blackboard. And so... Um, you were like, I've been doing this for 10 years already from an island in the Caribbean. You can do this, right? Yes, I guess so. Yeah, I've been doing it for a while and it becomes natural to me. And so, um, you know, I didn't realize we were going to be doing it during a pandemic. Was there, <laughs> was was it a heavy lift? I mean, at, at WT, did it feel like, okay, this is a big challenge? And did you face like some resistance from some of the professors who've been doing it a different way for so many years how did, how did that work i think initially at you know m most institutions there there is some resistance to technology you know uh, you have someone that is an expert in a field right and they want to disseminate the knowledge we don't want technology to take over we want technology to support what we're trying to right, do and right. so which i definitely understand uh like human like we need that human experience and so uh but I think any everywhere, every institution, there is going to be that the backlash or mm. or the or, or just Some like the negative maybe. or friction or yeah. you know. But the weird thing with the pandemic was the need. The need was far greater, right? And so I didn't I didn't see the resistance. I, people either just did it on their own, or they reached out to us and uh, we helped them, you know, get online so that they can teach her students and continue the learning during a global pandemic. And so that's, that was interesting to me, you know, whereas working at other institutions during a, a normal academic year, there would be really thought provoking conversations around technology and online yeah, learning yeah. and what are you doing and how, and which I respect, 
you know, uh, but at this point, the it's pandemic just like, was we're like, all going to jump at once. And, <laughs> and we all jumped. <laughs> yeah. And, and even at the college level, I, I think there's probably less friction than there was, you know, with first and second grade teachers, you know, I can't imagine. No, no, no. <laughs> six or seven year old is equipped to do that online. So tell me then, uh, about your nonprofit and, and how long you've been doing that. So how did, how did that idea really start? It started in, in Dominica. Okay. And, uh, you know, my mom's story really has motivated me to, to do this work. My okay. mom grew up in poverty in the Philippines in a bamboo house. Wow. No running water, no electricity. And so, I mean, just hold that. Like, I think, and I hold that always. Yeah. that's a part of my life. That's a part of my story. But that's also, I think, familiar to a lot of kids. Before we get there, how did she end up? In the United States, then. So my dad uh, was stationed at Clark Air Force Base. Okay. And they met and fell in love. Um, I don't know all the details. Well, you know, I, you I wish know, we knew all the details. Does. A lot of kids don't want to ask their parents those details. <laughs> but that, that's not an uncommon story for military families. I mean, that that does happen. It's it's interesting uh, to hear somebody who's a product of that. And they're still married. Mm-hmm. They they live in Hawaii. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, it's easier for her to go see her mom. She's actually uh, in the Philippines with um, my grandmother. And so, um, yeah. Um, and so during our, our childhood, she would remind us, like, how important education are, are the opportunities that we have also, how important for us to take you know advantage of our education and do work hard, you know. And as a child, you think, mm, you know, I'm going to do what my mom or, or, or dad says, and you don't really understand, right? And so fast forward, you know, through uh, through our education, we, we did well in school mm-hmm. and um, had the support and motivation. Moved to Dominica, and it just reminded me of my mom's story. I saw children walking on the side of the streets. I saw the need. You know, I saw mm-hmm. homes that were uh, simple, Uh no, no closed door. It was just a, a entrance where you can just walk into the home and no running water. There, there was a faucet outside, and so very simple living. And, and so, and my wife was pursuing her her dream job of becoming a doctor, and I was working at the university. It's like we've got to do something. We can't just leave and not do anything. And so, started a nonprofit to help provide books, supplies, art supplies. Uh, to kids in Dominica. Every time we, we, we'd go home here in Texas, we would visit family and do the triangle because we have family in San Antonio, the, here in the Panhandle area, Midland area as well. And so we would go visit everybody while we were here uh, in, in between breaks and bring back clearance items, whether it was like yeah. clothing or art supplies, books. And, and so... You know, those those moments when we provided those supplies to schools or uh, family members we became close to um, really sat with us. Like, I, I, those are memories we'll never forget. And we, we, we didn't want to leave the island not doing anything. Yeah. And so started a nonprofit, and it's growing. It's expanded <laughs> over the last 10 years. And that's that's interesting because generally people think, well, you you have a nonprofit and you you started this, you know, while you're here in Texas or, or to to meet the needs of people in the Southwest or whatever it might be. Uh, yours actually started in Dominica, <laughs> but it continues here, and like really, it's the 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 growth of it has been 
here, right? As opposed to like spreading throughout, you know, Central America or right, the right. Caribbean. Um, so tell me, yeah, tell me about the scope then of the nonprofit and, and what it does. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to share that one thought real quick with okay. you because, you know, most people will start a nonprofit in the community that they live and serve. Right. Right. And, and we did that, but then we also moved around. Right. Which is really, and you un- didn't stay there. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's really unheard of. Right. It's just like, going to follow me. Wherever yeah. I go. It's like a mobile, like, like a mobile community nonprofit where we, we do good work where we are. Hmm. And so I think that's what we did over the last 10 years. You know, my wife was really busy, so she didn't, wasn't able to do as much, but um, super supportive of the work that we're doing. But every time we moved while following her journey, I, you know, grew the nonprofit and partnered with new schools uh, to, to drive uh, improved literacy outcomes for kids. And so, um, that's that's our goal, you know. Over the years, we we've learned a lot, and I think what we what we learned is that we need to provide consistent literacy moments for kids, not okay. just one time, but several times throughout the school year. And so now we're headquarters in the Texas Panhandle. We're doing a lot of great work with schools uh, in in the Texas Panhandle to drive improved literacy outcomes. And so we partner with schools uh, and we provide curriculum, uh, lessons, classroom libraries. Uh, we have a literacy fellowship for educators to get involved. And so in turn, they can drive improved literacy outcomes. Okay. Is it at a number of different schools, number of different school districts? It's not just limited to like AISD or Canyon ISD. It's, it's broader than that. Yeah, we've worked with several school districts in, in the uh, panhandle. And so uh you know, Amarillo, Canyon, Pampa, Hart. As we continue to expand and develop stronger partnerships, we we definitely want to drive improved literacy outcomes for long term. And so we want to really strengthen those partnerships in ways that we continue to work with those school districts and grow. Nonprofit work is not mm-hmm. easy, mm-hmm. you know, and so it takes funding, it takes uh volunteers it takes uh, so many you know different uh, facets to to really grow but also implement the work that we're doing with fidelity okay i'm thinking of my readers or my listeners i'm thinking in your your perspective <laughs> of my listeners who um maybe hear a phrase like improved literacy outcomes and they think oh that sounds like some you know college educational kind of stuff i don't really know what that means um because they're not teachers or they're not administrators. So tell me, tell me what that means, like in, you know, the real world terms of a kid who maybe grows up in, in poverty. What does that look like? Growth. I think the first thing is, I think we, we think of, you know, we don't, I don't want folks to stray away from, or like improve literacy outcomes or get scared of, okay, well, I can't be involved. Right. Or, what do you like? I don't truly really understand what you're trying to yeah. say, you know. So, I think there's a lot of data out there that uh, shares the need uh, to improve lives through literacy, you know. And so, third grade data, you know, if you're not reading at, at this at, at grade level by a certain grade level, um, you might not be able to finish high school. Right. You might it set not, you back yeah. far enough that you're always kind of catching up, and, and sometimes you don't ever catch up. And yeah, true, right? And so, like for us, like I don't know, like I I kind of think about okay, 
do I don't want to focus just on that, right? A data point. I want to focus on growth. And I want to focus on growing every year with our teachers, with our students and our school district partners. And so then, you know, students are motivated to read. Mm -hmm. They're motivated to learn. They're growing. And and then in in the end, what's going to happen is when they take those tests, they'll, they'll do well. You know, so if you look at, you know, there are articles, there's research out there, there's kids that are growing up in a, a privileged or, or just have more resources mm-hmm. than there's kids that are in underserved, right? That don't have these resources. Like they don't, like there are kids who have a lot of books at home and kids who don't have books. Right, at home. right. And so, but if we can just help our kids that might not have those resources grow, with with those resources to ensure that they can grow their love of reading, grow their reading skills, grow um, family involvement in literacy mm-hmm. as well. And so we have to have consistent moments, literacy moments to grow. Like you don't, you, you have to do something a certain amount of times to, to show growth. Right. right. I, I think there's, there's, there's articles about that. Yeah. There's statements about that. And so, if we if we want to help children grow, let's let's provide them with those consistent literacy moments. Are are those moments happening on the kids level, or are you working through like the teachers to make those moments happen? Like like how do you divide your focus? Um, because ultimately, you want to reach the kids, but sometimes it, it means equipping the teachers to know how to reach those kids. Two, two unique programs. We have our literacy fellowship program, and then we have the student ambassador mm-hmm. uh, program. And so they're both leadership programs, but also uh, they each of the programs advance literacy in their community. And so teachers can sign up uh, to implement projects throughout the school year. I'll go over that here in a second. But the student does the students do the same thing, but from the student's lens. And so we work with student ambassadors to help uh, provide books and supplies to kids at underserved schools. And so we have students here in the the Texas Panhandle, like Ray. Right, right. (laughs) About that age, I mean, is is it all ages or are you looking at at a certain age level or grade? 13 to uh, 24 is is the student ambassador project age requirements. We do have some parents that uh, work with their child and, you know, and they apply to be a part of the student ambassador project. And so uh, depending on parental support, you know, sometimes we'll accept a student that might be 11 years old okay. because their parent is going to, you know, all of, all of the parents are a part of the student ambassador project. Uh, but if we're going to work with someone younger than 13, we, we definitely ask that the, the parent really be heavily involved. What does it look like to be a student ambassador? I'm just thinking of, you know, an eighth grader, ninth grader saying you're an ambassador for reading and trying to figure out what that might look like in a classroom or or at their school. Well, I think on our end, it looks like helping students realize that they can be a part of uh, the solution. They can use their voice. They can take action to help kids in need. Uh, It looks like students that, that have a love for reading or might, you know, still need to develop that love of reading but when they use their voice to help others and provide these reading experiences for kids, and our our hope is that they develop a, a deeper appreciation for for books as well on 
the leadership side, you know, the person giving, but also the students that receive those books from, from that student. And so it looks like students working together to, to be part of that solution. Uh, I don't think we need to wait until you're in your career to learn how to be an active community member. Mm-hmm. Our students deserve to, to learn how to be an active community member through service projects, through opportunities uh, like the Student Ambassador Project or working with other nonprofits to take action. There's so many you know, issues that that are faced locally and globally, you know, and so and students have really great ideas. And one of the students here started, Ray started the Black is Beautiful book project, mm-hmm. and he's helped give thousands of books to teachers and students across the Texas Panhandle, but also in other states. Wow. And his work has been featured in the New York Times as well. And and that's not something that you know any any parent probably thinks this is what I want for my kid. I want for my kid to to do this. They, they just don't know that that's possible. And it's it's providing a a platform you know for that kind of work to happen that I think is really unique. I I wonder what it looks like for educators because I think a, a lot of people might think well I mean obviously educators their job is to promote literacy. That's what school is for. Right. You know why does it take an organization like yours to provide these extra resources or this extra guidance, you know, separate from the school systems? Like, why do you have to partner with the school systems at all? Uh, might be a question that, you know, that people are, are wondering. I think that's a good question, but I think I would, you know, the first thought that comes to mind is ima- or imagine being a teacher and having 30 students, mm-hmm. 30 families. So that's, you know, 60 potential folks that you have to communicate, right, throughout and support the educational efforts, literacy efforts throughout the school year. Now imagine additional support from a community partner that will help that teacher, their students and the families grow their love for literacy. Mm -hmm. And so... We saw a lot of success with the students leading literacy projects, uh, and we started that Student Ambassador Project in 2014. Um, when we started to see success at the individual student level, we were like, well, my team was, we were having conversations, what if we did this in classrooms? What if we activated service projects, provided lessons in classrooms? Would teachers, you know, appreciate that? Would they, you know, be, would they like, you know, working with us? And mm-hmm. so... Uh, we piloted it in 2018. We piloted it uh, with a, a classroom, and it was successful. And great feedback from the teacher, the students, and the families. And so in 2019, we, we decided to you know launch our inaugural uh, literacy fellowship where educators and librarians could join our team, and we, we work alongside them throughout the school year and providing those consistent literacy moments. So they get a classroom library, they get service projects, mm-hmm. they get four book distributions to give to their kids, their students. And so those students get to take those books home and enjoy them with their families. And so that happens throughout the school year. And those are the moments that the teachers will never forget, the students won't forget, and the yeah. families won't. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about... I know so much of what you do is is working with students in poverty, students that that lack those resources. 
And, you know, you mentioned your mom growing up in a, a bamboo hut. You mentioned the, the homes that you saw in Dominica. And I, I wonder, like, those, those are the types of poverty that sometimes people here might think of, and they think of, you know, really abject or extreme poverty. And poverty here in the Texas Panhandle maybe looks a little bit different from that, uh, but just to various degrees. And I, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about what you've seen in some of those students and, and how, you know, maybe the opportunities they have here uh, is, is helping lift them out of that or at least give them the hope of, of something beyond that. There's so many different family structures. There's, there's so many different um, challenges, right, families are facing. And so whether here in Amarillo or in the Texas Panhandle or, you know, globally, I think here, you know, what we're trying to do is really provide those consistent support for the kids to, to have access to books, have, have positive affirmations, because every book we give includes uh, words of encouragement mm. and then also family engagement in ways that families can engage because so many of the families that uh, we work with might be working two to three jobs and so uh, unfortunately that doesn't lend itself to you know family helping out with homework yeah. all the time and so I, I think giving students resources where they have books that they'll be able to relate to, they'll be able to fall in love with reading. Um, and those words of encouragement goes a long way. I, I think it's hard to, I guess, like I'm thinking and I'm, I think it's so hard to like just say or describe, you know, like the, the describe families that are, you know, struggling because like they, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, th I'm probably overthinking this. Well, and, and I, I think there's a lot of different types of poverty too that, that people might see or might not see here. I mean, you, you have so many refugee families here. Uh, there are so many single parent households. Um, there are some of those households with two parents, but the, both parents are working, you know, multiple shifts or, or multiple jobs. And, and so you're right that it, there's not, a singular definition of what poverty looks like, um, except that there's a lack of resources or a lack of support mm -hmm. uh, for education. And so any, anything to, to increase that support, I think probably is beneficial. I guess like one of the things like, you know, my, my experiences, you know, working with families, you know, I might have some resources or you might have resources. I think it's a win-win. Like I, you know, there, there may be a lack of resources, but I, I think when we all come together, I think we learn from each other. I think mm -hmm. that's what I'm, I've been trying to say. You know, I don't, I don't think it matters that, you know, I live here and you live here, and you might not have these resources. I think, and but I think our, what really, really matters, or what truly matters, is when we come together and support each other. I guess that's what I'm trying to get to. Okay. At the heart of it, the families that we work with have taught me more about community, about how to how to be there for one another. And I've been able to take that and, you know, our team is able to, you know, continue to expand and grow. Let's sw switch gears a little bit. And you brought up the community and the importance of that. I wonder if you could talk to me about what you've sort of come to learn about this area um, having known it, but only known it because you came here occasionally. And then now you moved here and you moved here like right before a pandemic started. Um, 
So what have the past, you know, two or three years kind of helped you learn about the people that live here? Because you've lived in so many different places. How, how are we different? How are we the same from, from other places you've experienced? I think this, this community is unique. You know, I think um, it's hard to uh, even think about like the similarities. I think mm-hmm. Amarillo is unique in its own. And so uh, over the last two years, I, I think I appreciate the diversity of the community, like the diversity of leaders, diversity of the population. It's so rich in culture. And I think, it, I think it's so important that we embrace that and we share the stories of our community. And I think it's great that you're doing this in ways where you get stories out there and there's just so many here in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you kind of think it's a, it's a small town, but it really isn't, you know, it's, it's a pretty, I think it's a large size community with diversity. I think it is. I think that's surprising maybe for some people to hear. Because there's a perspective that, you know, all Texans are this, or the Texas Panhandle is just a whole bunch of, you know, white conservatives, or, you know, pick pick whatever you want to categorize people as. And the idea of, of this area as being very diverse, as, as having a whole lot of different cultures and stories and, and those kinds of things might surprise people who don't live here and don't encounter those stories. Um, and, and so to hear you confirm that, and, and you've lived in so many different places, I think that's significant, uh, because you're an outsider looking in and getting involved and saying, yeah, it's true. There are so many different kinds of people here. Uh, and I, I think that's a real strength of this community, but it's not a story that we tell very often. And it's a surprise to a lot of outsiders, I think. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing about this community. And so I definitely think that there's, as I meet you know, community members uh, in East Ridge or uh, in the Barrio or North Heights or in San Jacinto, I see stories, I see culture, I see a variety of people that that really love living here. And that's what makes this, this place great, you know, the diversity of, of the community and the stories that are there and... I think more more people are going to start moving here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just gives us more, more stories to tell. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and that includes the one in Amarillo. It's owned by the Hawkins family, and they live right here in town. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and it's a lot more than just recliners. Lazy Boy has a bunch of items in stock right now, so go take a look in their showroom on Sansi. That's Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sansi. Okay, I'm back with Chris McGilvery of the Leaders Readers Network. Chris, this is the part of the show I call 8 Straight. 8 Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and you were talking about resources. Its collection includes a research center with thousands of books, newspapers, maps, manuscript collections, oral histories, uh, photographs. It's all on the third floor. It's it's private. It's kind of accessible only by appointment, but uh, it's been used by writers and historians all over the United States. It's one of my favorite places, actually, at the museum. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, these are the questions I ask all of my guests. 
The first one is what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? That uh, we're, we're here for each other. You're someone who's involved in education and online learning, and you're the spouse of a physician. Uh, so I, I imagine you've like you've, you've seen all the different aspects of how people have responded to it. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Good and bad, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you, when you're deep into the future and you're looking back at you know these last couple of years and thinking about it, uh, do you think you'll remember the negatives or the positives? I'm going to hold on to the good. Okay. That's probably healthy. Let's do that. <laughs> Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I would say, well, the wind has been like, I've, I've had to get used to that, <laughs> but there's a lot of steak here. <laughs> All right. You <laughs> too much steak. used to the steak yet? No. You I can grow not. accustomed to the wind, but not the, uh, <laughs> the large amounts of beef. Yes. <laughs> it is the beef capital of the world. Um, but it, that's true. It, it, it probably is something that a lot of local people don't think about. If they grow up here, there's just, we eat a lot of meat. What does this area not have enough of? I guess on the other end, it's uh, vegan options. Yeah. Could that's, be. That's absolutely true. Have you found <laughs> some good places here or reliable places? Yeah, there there are a few. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I enjoy a vegan meal, you know, mm-hmm. and so, and I enjoy a good steak. And so, um, Yellow City Street. Yeah. YCSF, Yellow yeah. City Street Food. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really well-respected um, spot and it has garnered some outside attention for the vegan meals that they provide. And then there's a, a vegan food truck that goes to Pontesetta. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great option too. Um, we do Los need Los Angeles. Though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if people who have traveled uh, and then come back here are always a little bit disappointed that you can't just go to a decent vegetarian place or, or vegan. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? I say we doesn't seem like we're in Texas because we're all the way up north, right? Mm-hmm. Or some people say west, <laughs> um, but we're close to Colorado, New Mexico is what I, you know, we're and we have four seasons. <laughs> yeah, that's legit. We're closer to uh, state capitals of Colorado and New Mexico than we are to our own state capital. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo or Canyon? I'll give you both those. Uh, I think San Jacinto is. I just I think. More time we you know stay here, mm-hmm. um, and we we get to experience it. There's something special about San Jacinto. What do you think that is? Like, how would you describe that I think that the, specialness? The history, the culture. I think they're they're the Route 66 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just imagine how it was 50 years ago, and then yeah. I also imagine how it will be 10 years from now. You know, okay. I think there's something special uh, that that neighborhood is going to you know. Uh, continue to expand and grow. Good. What's your favorite local restaurant? Okay, so over by Wesley Community Center, there is a Mexican restaurant over there. Um, my son and I were driving uh, around the neighborhood, and we happened to just bump into Frontera. La Frontera, yeah. That's some good Mexican food. Right. And that, uh, that You mentioning <laughs> that, like that's not a place that's going to – Surprise a lot of listeners because it's it's a very well known uh, restaurant in that community has been there forever and there are lots of people that just that's the only place they'll eat I absolutely love it. Well, I can't wait to go back. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it makes me want to go back. Okay, I ask you this because your focus has been on literacy and, and kids. What's your favorite children's book? My voice is a trumpet by Jimmy Allen. Okay, uh, it's a great book. Teaches. Uh, Children and families, just use your voice for good. 
and uh, we have a voice for that reason. And so it, it's a neat children's book uh, with lots of great illustrations. And after reading it with my kids, mm-hmm. uh, I can hear my 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 son. I'm going to use my voice for this, or you know, uh, it, it's just a, a really great children's book that it relates to the work that I'm doing, but also uh, helps students to use their voice too. Okay, cool. And you mentioned Paladero Canyon. When was the last time you visited Paladero Canyon? A few weeks ago with right. family. We're always, we love to go. <laughs> we are just now reaching the uh, the time of year when it's really, really nice there. And so I'm excited about springtime and a little bit warmer weather and all that kind of stuff when it comes to the canyon. We are ready for it. <laughs> Okay, well, that concludes the uh, eight straight questions. Chris, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I think be kind is like the first thing that comes to mind. I think that let's let's be kind and treat each other uh, with kindness and um, say hello to your neighbor, say hello to someone uh, that might go a long way. And so... I think that's all. (laughs) Those are good words. That's a good place to end it. All right, Chris McGilvery, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Chris for the interview. You can learn more about his organization at theleadersreadersnetwork.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors the Texas Outdoor Musical, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, and I pray you do because you've listened so far into it, if you didn't like it, you probably wouldn't be here right now. But if you like it, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. This helps other people find the show. And as usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you. So thank you so much for listening and the local people who support it financially through Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash hamrello. Hamrello's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Patrick Burns, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 245. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.